This week on Making Contact. We have been post-truth much longer than we thought. This is why it's difficult for us to face the truth in its own gleaming eyes and to understand the degree to which we have been complicit in post-fact, post-truth, alternate facts so much longer than Donald Trump. It just has never been as naked and never has been as evident and it never has been as viciously plain as it is now. America's unwillingness to assess the ugly truth about systemic inequality has created a perpetual sinkhole of denial, a reality that existed long before Trump's presidency. It's America's legacy. On this edition, we hear from Michael Eric Dyson, a professor of sociology at Georgetown University. Dyson recently wrote What Truth Sounds Like, Robert F. Kennedy, James Baldwin, and our unfinished conversation about race in America. Shortly, we'll share a talk with Professor Dyson exploring race and truth in the age of Trump. I'm Anita Johnson, your host this week on Making Contact, a program connecting people, vital ideas, and important information. When we think about where we are in this age of Trump, a lot of people still have not grappled with the fact that this is indeed a reality. Now, in similar fashion, when Barack Obama became president, a lot of people couldn't believe that either, but in a different fashion. My God, it's amazing. Look at the progress in America that we could have our first black president of the United States of America and what that signaled about this nation that despite its persistent bigotry and its refusal to acknowledge the full humanity of all of God's children that this nation at least saw fit to elect to the highest office in the land a man of high intelligence and elocutionary eloquence, rhetorical sophistication, and words that make sense all of which seem to be manifestly absent right about now. And then with the election in 2016 of Donald Trump, people were equally aghast at the prospect of what America could possibly mean that successively we elected one man who represented one set of values, principles, ideals, and motives, virtues, and visions, and on the other hand, so quickly repudiate those visions, virtues, principles, and understandings with the election of a man who was diametrically opposed to everything his predecessor stood for. just reminds us of the constant negotiation, as the British would say, of American identity and the perilous platforms that we often adapt to express that identity. That was the... And so when we think about this country and its status, we, we recall the fact that during the primaries, the average income of the people who supported Donald Trump was $70,000. That ain't poor white folk. 
many well-to-do white folk made a decision about where this country would head. And in many cases, it was a direct repudiation of the eight years that preceded him. As much as we want to think that we loved and embraced Obama, Obama also represented something that was fearful to many people, terrorized some who believed that his presidency was the articulation of a vastly incompetent regime of color that was undeserving of its elevated status. And as a result of that, we had to take our country back, that he was leading us down wrong pathways and leading us into a quagmire morally and politically speaking, that he was a deep and profound problem. And Obama was basically a moderate Democrat. Imagine if he had really been a serious progressive or a leftist. They claim that he's a Marxist. Where? That shows you both the depth of the ignorance in assessing what progressive politics are about, but it also shows you just how deeply and profoundly resistant America is to even open-minded, liberal, much less progressive ideas. One thing to entertain them, another thing to implement them. And so Barack Obama scared many white brothers and sisters in particular in this country. And he was a nice Negro. Very judicious, very gracious, eloquent, mellifluous, sophisticated, read books. Now, you can debate what he did with drones. You can talk about his foreign policy. You can talk about the consequences of his racial ideology in America. Those are legitimate, up for debate, should be held to account. He is, that is. His history should be examined through the prism of our progressive ideas. But to acknowledge just how deep the resistance was to him is to understand how America went from Barack Obama to Donald Trump. Many try to explain it away. Well, but some of the same voters who voted for Barack Obama voted for Donald Trump. So how dare you even suggest that race played a role, that class played a role, that perhaps what played the role was the inability of the Democratic Party to foster a vision that could be convincing to millions of Americans. That may be true, but we cannot deny the vicious sexism that undercut Hillary Clinton. Right? I ain't saying you should have. I'm sure many people who were progressive thought she was not the best, but it ain't but a two-person game at that level. At that point, it was Hillary versus Trump. And many of my brothers and sisters on the left tried to convince me that there was no difference between Donald Trump and Hillary Clinton. I beg to differ. I did. I debated on dem democracy now. My dear friend and I argue with many black people on the left saying, no, we can't make that dangerous elision of distinction. There are gradations of difference that have tremendous magnitudes of moral and political difference. Ain't trying to say Hillary was ideal, but and nobody is. Nobody who's had that office is. Well, she's not likable. She ain't trying to be your girlfriend. She got a man. 
more knowledge in her little finger than he had in his entire body, hovering over her with his predatory fascist behavior, trying to police and subject her rhetoric to his patriarchal perspective and purview. And so Donald Trump emerges in the aftermath of the repudiation and rejection of blackness. And so there was an animus toward blackness that was manifest across this society. When Obama was elected as president, he became a symbol for the aspirations not only of the American dream and ideal of e pluribus unum, that cradle that motivates us, he also was a symbol for racial progress and pride for African-American people, regardless of what we thought about him politically. He became a symbol for us. We became his proxy. So there was a spike in police killings of unarmed black people. Can't get him, get us. We began to see the worsening of relations between law enforcement and the communities of color and the inability to acknowledge our fundamental humanity. And so it was exacerbated under Obama. And now, under Mr. Trump, it is hardly paid attention to. Installed in the Department of Justice, a man so arthritically reactionary, trying to take us back to an earlier epic, his nostalgia for a time of tremendous bigotry and diffidence against difference and indifference to those who make moral claims on the state about the need to become more diverse and equitable, this man in the Department of Justice most unjust. And so race and truth under Trump have a peculiar legacy. And we find ourselves in an interesting point because in many ways, Donald Trump is treating America the way the worst of white America has always treated black America and brown and American people of color. In other words, the bigotry that stained the American soul has now metastasized across the body politic to become a cancer of attack and assault upon many differences. Everybody black now. <laughs> Donald Trump is narcissistic, self-involved, hateful, petty, using social media to avenge his perceived haters who are numerous if they do not genuflect before the altar of his manifest superiority and his genius then they are done away with. Even people working within his own orbit find themselves subject to his arbitrary exercise of power. This is what we've been trying to tell you. White supremacy at its worst does to us. Nothing we can do can stop it. No justification of our humanity will convince it that it must go a different route. We cannot dissuade it based upon our pedigree or talent. This is what Donald Trump is subjecting America to. We know that the shocking depths to which he descends to assault Mexicans, 
Muslims, women. Here we have a predator in chief, a racist in residence, and a bigot in the Oval Office. And we turn to our women, our sisters, the women in our lives, and say, we are ashamed that this is our representative, a man who believes he can just grab it. And then trying to blame rap music for that. Rap music ain't about grabbing it, Doc, not at its best. We, we know better than that, grabbing a woman. You ain't got to. What? The infelicitous securing and procuring of reciprocal attention from a woman does not ride upon rape culture and violence. This is why many men who are part of incel, enforced celibacy, boo-hoo, women won't pay attention to you so you become mass murderers. And the justification for it up in Santa Barbara, this is the ideal. And what amazes me is people who are always talking about people of color and women as whiners and victimizers are the biggest victim mongerers and whiners in the nation. Whining about they don't have the possibility of women speaking to them and these mean women won't speak to them. And as a result of that, they become pathological and, 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 and they end up becoming murderers and they do things that are destructive and they justify that destruction based upon their rejection by women. And so in this age of Trump, with predatory behavior in the White House, grabbing women, and so many women have come forward to suggest that this has been a problem. In this particular age of Trump, race is a problem, but truth is a problem too. You're listening to Michael Eric Dyson discuss his latest book, What Truth Sounds Like, Robert F. Kennedy, James Baldwin, and our unfinished conversation about race in America. This is Making Contact. To listen to past shows, subscribe to our podcast, get our updates, or support our work, go to radioproject.org. You can help us do this work. Please make a donation right now at radioproject.org and hit the donate button. No corporate government funding, just you. Any amount of support helps. Thank you. We don't know. I mean, here's a man who just be saying stuff just to be saying it when he's saying it as he says it. And on record saying something different and says that he didn't say it. Which makes us feel crazy. Did we not just hear him say the exact opposite? But the arrogance is so deep. The narcissism is so thick. The belief that anything he says is above dominion, sovereignty, and law. But we think that this is the first time that we have been post-truth. He talks about fake news. It didn't begin under Donald Trump. We were post-truth 1619. When we brought 20 Africans from African soil to Jamestown and then tried to justify it theologically by believing God wanted us to do that. That's post-truth. When we 
try to talk about American exploration and the enterprise of colonizing savages, what we call experimentation and exploration, indigenous people call genocide. What some have called heritage and the celebration of their own mothers and fathers and great mothers, great grandmothers and great grandfathers in the Confederate we call bigotry and hate. And then we are told that no, the Civil War was not fought about slavery. It was about states' rights. This is post-truth. These are alternative facts. And then when you ask, what were they fighting for the right of states to do? Own human beings as slaves. But all along, when we denied the legitimacy of people of colors or women, their existence in this society, we were engaging in alternative facts. We were challenging the durability of truth. If truth was a consensus generated out of an agreed-upon practice, we were always at odds. The media that is now upset that Donald Trump mistreats it and thinks of it as vicious fails to understand how it mischaracterized Asian brothers and sisters, how it mischaracterized Latino, Latinx brothers and sisters, how it distorted the images stereotypically of black and brown people. This has been an issue far before Donald Trump. And the reason it's difficult for us to do that, we don't want to admit Donald Trump is not an aberration, he's a summation. It's hard for many people to see that because they want to say Donald Trump is just, he ain't us. He's crazy. And yet the reality is he very well may be reelected. Our Republican brothers and sisters for the most part have become complicit in a system of mendacity and the erosion of our ethical core as a result of playing politics with a man who is threatening the value of American democracy. And so finally, Mr. Ryan, Speaker of the House, said, no, I disagree with separating children from their parents as our merciless immigration policies are deployed at a front where a father who was denied access to his child killed himself rather than be separated from his children. Think of that Negro spiritual, and before I'll be a slave, I'll be buried in my grave and go home to my God and be free. We are living in a time where we are not respecting the fundamental integrity and the humanity of our brothers and sisters. We are not cognizant of how we have become complicit for so much longer than a Trump presidency. A Trump presidency is easy to identify as a malicious and malignant and malevolent manifestation of a lying refusal to embrace the truth. But at the end of the day, we have become complicit in that. We have normalized what this is. And we must fight with all of our will to see that this is a deep and profound problem. And yes, in this age of Trump, race is an extremely difficult 
reality for so many people to grapple with. We talk about white privilege. Many white brothers and sisters say, I don't have any privilege. My God, you got more money. Your kids are doing better. You drive bigger, better cars. No such thing as white privilege. I understand that. But you see, when Jim Crow was at its height, that is white water fountains, black water fountains, black schools, white schools, separate but equal, it did not mean every white person would be rich. It simply meant that the people who were likely to be rich would be white. During Jim Crow, it didn't mean every white person could go to Harvard or Berkeley. It meant that the people who could go to Harvard and Berkeley were white. Even before that, with these elite institutions of higher education, when only white people could go, it didn't mean all white people could go. It meant only the people who could get in could go, but they were always white. So it meant only white people could go, not only all white people can go. And if it was based upon something other than race, when people say, well, you're rich. Jackie Robinson was rich. His kids were treated the same way. So was Joe Lewis's kids. Martin Luther King Jr. had to explain to his kids why they couldn't go to Funtown to enjoy amusements. And so white privilege is tough for many white brothers and sisters to, to grapple with. This is why I write this story about Bobby Kennedy in my book. Bobby Kennedy was a, a white liberal, but he, he didn't realize, he didn't know a lot about race or not as much as he thought he did. And when he heard it from those he had beseeched to speak to him, it was difficult for him to hear. And so, yes, white privilege is not something we use as a culture to beat up on white people to say, aha, to finger point and to remonstrate against them morally. No, it is to ask people to take a sensitive tour of the possibilities of their lives that have been presented to them for no other reason than that they belong to a group that has not been historically marginalized and made part of the periphery of American culture and afforded opportunities that others have not been. Doesn't mean that white folk don't work hard. Doesn't mean that white folk are not smart. Doesn't mean that white folk have not tried to do the right thing within the context of their lives. It simply means that we have a predictable pattern of outcome, of talking about the outcome based upon racial identity in America. And it's still true. People who have better access to health care. Doctors treat black and white and brown people differently. They've done studies. They don't even get the same medicine when they're in the same economic class. And so things that people take for granted, microaggressions or bite-sized bigotry. Palatable prejudice. Palatable to who? Acceptable to many people because they think, oh, it's a small thing, but those small things, those paper cuts get infected and the body politic becomes infected with deep and abiding racial animus and historical negligence and the refusal to acknowledge the humanity of the other. Because often when the police are called, there are violent consequences. Often when the police are called for people of color, the results are not good. And so, my brothers and sisters, when we think about race in the age of Trump, yes, we have to acknowledge the fact that this president has reinforced such racial hostility against the other. Here he is in Charlottesville saying that people who fight Nazism, who fight fascism, who fight anti-Semitism are the same as those who perpetuate those ills. 
good people on both sides. Tiki torch wearers, young white men with well-coiffed hair. They don't wear robes anymore, they're neatly adorned, but with vicious beliefs still percolating in their breasts and in their brains and in their ideals. Ideals that are infected by racial dominance and, and mythologies and dreams and fantasies of racial purity. We're still trying to separate the races as if we could discreetly enumerate those peoples who are different from each other as if it constituted an anthropology of difference that we could mark out a species of difference. The anthropologists have already told us everybody who is capable in a heterosexual paradigm in a cisgender way of propagating and having kids are part of the same race. And we keep inventing reasons for us to be different. And then people say to us, especially people of color, I was over in Canada debating Jordan Peterson. They say, why do you not want to be treated as an individual? Why do you keep appealing to identity politics and group talk? I said, I... I want to be an individual. They just won't treat me like one. You're not being treated like an individual when you go to Starbucks and they don't know what you want and call the police on you within three minutes. You're not being treated like an individual. You're being treated as a representative of a group that causes concern. When you're at a cookout and you get the police called on you, you're not being treated like an individual. So America denies the legitimacy of our individual identity forcing us into a group that it characterizes us by through vicious stereotype and the refusal to acknowledge our humanity and then wonders why we make appeal to the state and to the public for redress as a group. Because as a group, we have been seen as a third certain thing. Of course we want to be seen as individuals, but the individual things that people of color do and women are seen as exceptional to the group or race or gender. But the bad things we do are seen as representative of the group. And so Donald Trump has evinced and really pulled out the negative consequences of our own racial dynamics in America. So what do we do? Race and truth have suffered. And the first thing we have to do is to recognize we can't get there by lying to ourselves. That is to say, it's hard to really talk about the reality of race now. We don't want to do that. It's tiring. People are exhausted. It's 2018. Do we have to talk about this? We want to talk about whether Colin Kaepernick can ever get a shot in the NFL because the collusion of owners refuses to acknowledge his humanity too and his will to play. Beat a woman, you can play on Sunday. Kill somebody, you can play on Sunday. Hurt somebody, abuse a child, you can play on Sunday, but God forbid you stand up for people who are less well off than you are to represent racial and social justice in America.
And that'll do it for this edition of Making Contact, What Truth Sounds Like. Special thanks to KPFA for hosting and recording this conversation featuring Michael Eric Dyson. If you enjoyed this week's program, do us a favor by sharing this episode with folks or join us online at www.radioproject.org and drop us a comment about today's program. Also, don't forget to like, share, and subscribe or follow us on Facebook and Twitter. Our handle is making underscore contact. The Making Contact team is Lisa Rudman, Salima Himarani, Monica Lopez, Anita Johnson, Sabine Blazin, and Dylan Hoyer. I'm Anita Johnson. Thanks for listening to Making Contact. Making Contact.